0: Welcome back to The Middle of Medicine. This is episode number 12, and I am one of your hosts, Peter Jones.
1: And I am your other host, Aubrey Jones.
0: And uh, Aubrey, how have you been doing? It's been a couple weeks since we've chatted, and how are things going?
1: You know, it's going. (laughs) (laughs) School is in a... I taking a summer semester, and it's a lot of work, and work is a lot of work as well, but... It's good. It's, it's yeah. going. <laughs>
0: Still working three shifts a week, or are you picking up extras now that school's back in?
1: I'm just doing three shifts a week because we just got a raise, so Ooh, I'm not, nice. not super worried about money, even though the incentives for picking up extras are insane right now. <laughs> like really? They are 3.25 times regular pay What baseline and then also they're giving out like lump sums for some shifts that is insane it's insane but three shifts is already so much for me with like school and everything so i for my mental health sake i'm not picking up any extras in the coming months
0: (laughs) i think that that's smart um yeah do you have will you have some time with no school before fall kicks back up
1: Yeah, I get my most of my classes like my finals week technically is like July twenty sixth or something like that. So okay, so you've got a few weeks. Yeah, lab is done even earlier than that. So it's I'll have a bit of a break, which is good because I need some sort of break. But yes, definitely. (laughs) How have you been? I've been hanging in there.
0: Um, You know, just kind of doing the same old, same old. I've had a couple stressful weeks with uh, big surgeries and including a big surgery on someone who was a recently, sort of recently retired colleague. Um, that's always stressful when you're doing yeah. surgery on someone who you know and who you yeah. think highly of and you've worked with and and you've offered them that they could go down to the University of Utah for their surgery and their response was, no, I'd just rather have you do it. I trust you. No pressure.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh yes. so,
0: so this week's nice. This week is just a bunch of little, kind of bread and butter cases. So nothing too stressful yeah. there, which is, which is good. And it's a That's little good. bit quiet. Your uh, your brother is out of the house for the week. He is uh, he's down which at one? Utah State. Uh, Alex, Alex oh. is. He's at f s y this week, and so oh, I didn't it's know just that. your yep, it's just your your mom, your youngest brother and I, and uh he's got a camp out this weekend, so you know it's it's an interesting time, it's getting to be a little weird having people growing up and being yeah. busy and I don't know i'm I'm looking at what it's gonna be like potentially when it's just your mom and I, and I'm like, what yeah. are we <laughs> gonna do so <laughs> yeah.
1: No kidding.
0: (laughs) But um, let's get on to our topic. And I thought you came up with an interesting one. And why don't you go ahead and introduce it to us and kick it off?
1: Yeah. So I was just thinking about... um, I haven't even watched Grey's Anatomy in a while. But I, I think I might have seen a clip or something on TikTok or something like that. But it was one of the scenes where there's the resident and... There's the interns, and of course in Grey's Anatomy, a resident takes is is kind of in charge of like five interns, and <laughs> the, the resident will be kind of watching the surgery, kind of you know standing over as the attending ish, and the intern like letting the intern do some part of the surgery or whatever, but as like a teaching method, they will just stand and let the intern panic and not do anything, not help watch the patient deteriorate until the very last second. And then the resident will step in and save the life in the most dramatic way possible or something. So I was just thinking about the teaching methods in medicine and how it, obviously everything is very hands-on. Um, mm-hmm. And, so I figured we could kind of talk about that because you have a lot of experience, obviously, with being taught as a resident and in as a med student and teaching because I know you have residents with you sometimes and, mm-hmm. and med students with you and I get to observe residents and I was, you know, taught myself as, um, anyway, I figured we could talk about teaching methods where I was, I've also been taught by fellow, fellow PCT, I've seen nursing students come in for clinicals and be taught by some of our students, I've seen just the nursing graduates, like the new hires, and orientation and stuff, so I've seen lots of teaching, been in some teaching, I haven't yet oriented anyone, because I'm not quite, I think they want you to be closer to like a year of experience <laughs> in order to do that, um... But I'm getting there. They were like, (laughs) I cleaned the slushing machine the other day, and they were like, do you remember how to do this well enough to teach someone? And I was like, I have to teach someone how to clean the slushing machine? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so I figured we could kind of chat about that. So what are your thoughts?
0: You know, teaching in medicine is interesting. And I have at times in the past referred to medical education as education by intimidation. (laughs) So it can, it doesn't have to be, but it can be something that, um, you know, it's a make somebody uncomfortable enough that they're not going to forget whatever principle you're talking to them about. I don't know that that's necessarily a great way to teach, yeah. But I think that there are some aspects of that that at least I found to be beneficial and that I do continue to use uh, in the teaching that I do, both with medical students and residents. And um, in, if we're using fancy terms, this would be referred to as the Socratic method of teaching. And what we just called it was pimping Is that, you know, we would just pimp each other or you'd pimp the med student or you'd pimp the resident. And basically that just involved asking them a question, putting them on the spot and waiting to see if they could come up with an answer. Mm -hmm. And why, have you ever been in a situation like that? Where somebody's taught you that way? And tell me about it a little bit. What did you think?
1: So I, there's one specific person who oriented me, one specific coworker who that's extremely his style. And it was the whole shift. Mm-hmm. We—it um, was my first time having an EVD. Uh, I know I've talked about EVDs before, but it was my very first time. And he just turns to me. We're in the patient room. The patient and the patient's family are right there. And he's mm-hmm. like, "Okay, so is this drain clamped?" And I was like, I- it- 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 "Yes." no I don't know <laughs> so I said yes or no I don't remember and he was like no so actually it's open and then he turned it a certain way and he goes okay so now is it clamped and I was like yes and he was like nope and I was like oh okay he turns it another way <laughs> is it clamped uh yeah nope it's actually not clamped. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're like I'll just keep trying yes until I get
1: it <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly but Basically, he he did that basically the the whole night. He would just keep asking me questions. Um, we were talking about the different um, oxygen like equipment, like the nasal cannula and blow by. And he would say, "So, how many liters do you put someone on blow by for?" And I was like, "Uh, I don't know, <laughs> but you know, without <laughs> some answer." And then, but since he put me on the spot, I remembered it. And I would remember mm-hmm. all of those things. And um, it was honestly a p- pretty good way for at least for me to learn, especially with him, because he would just quiz me. And then he'd put me on the spot, ask me a question. And if I got it wrong, I he would ask me again later as like another like, sure. top quiz. He'd be like, hey, so right. bring it back it, around. You know? Yeah. And yeah. So it's a very it was a very good way for me to retain information. (laughs) Yeah,
0: definitely. Uh, I found it to be the same. I thought it was an effective way to teach as long as the person who's using that way to teach actually teaches. So if all you're doing is asking questions and then telling them, no, they got it wrong or whatever, but you're not actually spending some time teaching and educating then it's useless. Then it doesn't do anything. But if you can make sure that, you know, if somebody, you know, the way I'll do it is I'll ask them a question and if they know the answer, great, I'll have them give me the answer. And then I'll ask them to tell me a little bit about that. Uh, If it's something where there's a process to get to that answer, then I want to talk to them about how did you get there? Uh, If there's some kind of background information in that, I want to see, do they have that? Because as with so many different things that um, we have to learn, I am a firm believer that understanding the context, understanding the the reason behind something is what it is, makes it much easier to remember. And if somebody doesn't know something, then I want to spend a little bit of time with them and try and help them get there. So if I ask somebody a question and they don't know the answer, well, then I'm going to not just give them the answer. I'm going to go and ask another question. That's a little bit more simple and a little bit more basic. And if they don't know the answer to that, then I'm going to go again and I'm going to keep asking questions until we get to something that they can answer usually. And then once they've answered that, then we'll start building on that. And again, I'm trying to ask questions. In a way that will guide them to that answer. Because if we as humans go through those steps to follow the logical pathways to get to an answer, I feel like we internalize it a lot better. I know yeah. I do. And I mean, look, you can attest to this. <clears throat> That's kind of always what I did with you guys as kids. Oh, yeah. So, um, You know, I, I think that that is a very effective method of teaching and if you can utilize it in a safe space, create a safe educational environment, then it doesn't intimidate people and it, like you said, it helps to get those answers ingrained a little bit more in in your head. And so... You know, that's, that's primarily how I teach when I teach um, med students and residents. It is in a lot of ways how I was taught, uh, depending on where I was or perhaps which residents or attendings I was with at the time. It was um, more un- aggressively uncomfortable versus less aggressively uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but I've always found that the Socratic method to be an effective way of, of teaching and retaining information. And I will at times do it in front of a patient. But in that situation, I always try and make sure that the first question or two I ask, I'm throwing out some real slow pitches in hopes that the med student or the resident can smack that one. Give them a little bit of confidence, make sure that I'm not making them look, quote, stupid in front of a patient or anything. Um, And so that's kind of, again, I'll start there, I'll ask them a question that I'm pretty sure they know the answer to, or that maybe I already know they know the answer to, because it's something we've already talked about. And then we'll kind of take it from there and maybe get just a little bit deeper. And I'll be honest, I do this with my patients a lot as well. <clears throat> a little bit less asking them questions, but still trying to step by step give them kind of little bits of information to help them understand how a medicine, you know, I want you to take this medication. Well, here's why I want you to take it, and here's how it works. So, this is why it should help. The reason, you know, whatever's going on, the reason I'm I'm asking you to take it. And I think that it just helps people feel more engaged in their own health care, understand it a little bit better. And I could be completely wrong with this, but at least I tell myself the fiction that they're going to be more compliant. They're going to be more likely to follow through and do what you ask them to. If you spent just a little bit of time to to help them understand the reason why. And so finding that comfortable way that you can teach is essential in medicine because not only are we teaching somehow, sometimes, you know, our juniors, but, you know, I try and teach my nurses that I'm working with. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why we're doing it. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I want to know as a result of this. Uh, You know, here's the, the disease process that we're addressing. And, and Try and give them those little bits of information so that they've got these logic building blocks that they can use to connect to create this bigger picture of what we're doing and why we're doing it.
1: Right.
0: At the same time, if I don't have a really great reason why I'm doing something, I'm totally comfortable saying, you know what, I want to try this, but I don't know exactly why. So, (laughs) you know, being willing to be honest, I think is super important. Um, what have you seen if much at all from the way the, uh, particularly the neuro and neurosurgery residents and interns do stuff like that when they're rounding and things?
1: Yeah. So I don't see a ton of rounding cause I've had so many night shifts lately, but when I do, <laughs> I'm not even going to lie the The neurosurgeons and the the attending physicians are usually kind of, to put it simply, assholes mm-hmm. <laughs> to their yeah. residents. Um, they'll stand like I out. said,
0: education by intimidation.
1: <laughs> yep they'll they'll kind of stand out by the nurses station before they go into the room to kind of go over, hey, so who is this patient? What are we doing for them? Who's gonna be doing these rounds in the room and uh, they kind of, you know, designate which of the residents it's going to be um to be like talking to the parent and the kid and stuff, but they'll go into the room and start doing the rounds or whatever and if <laughs> if like the the attending I will I will notice will ask questions of the resident who's Talking, And sometimes the resident will be like, um, I don't know, or something, or, you know, trying, trying to kind of go around the question and be like, oh, um, I'm not sure about that one or, you know, something like that, trying to get Mm -hmm. around the question. And then the attending will just go, hmm. Okay. And then just moves on. And then (laughs) then when they, when they go out of the room, I've heard them be like, so I didn't know the answer to that question. And the resident's like, "Oh well, I was I didn't know if we were gonna do this or this or this." And the, the attending's like, "Hey, well you need to know this and you need to know this and you need to know this." And I'm just mm-hmm. sitting there like, "Okay, cool." <laughs> and they go yeah. into the next room and they do it again. <laughs> and it's just, I don't know. I mean, again, I haven't seen a, a ton with the actual physicians, but they they've <laughs> the attending. Especially the neurosurgeon The orthodox are usually Kind of like They're usually kind of chill Like That's because I know they're like this. bro What's the
0: answer bro Neuros I mean yeah. ortho bro What's the answer ortho bro
1: <laughs> Yeah Like I, I might have mentioned this before On the podcast but <laughs> An orthodox Went in with one of the I don't remember if it was a like an intern or resident. I don't know. One of the, they were in training and they go into the room and I hear the attending ortho dude be like, okay, so uh, what, what do we got to do in order for this kid to go home today? And the resident was like, um, have a bowel movement. And the ortho was like, yeah, she's got to poop before she can go home. <laughs> that sounds like ortho. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, the, the neurosurgeons tend to be very kind of, I can like condescending and passive aggressive and just weird. It's just weird. They're mm-hmm. weird. <laughs>
0: yeah. Neurosurgeons are, I mean, it's really interesting in medicine and, you know, this would be something we could certainly talk about down the road. Uh, but there are very specific personalities two different subspecialties in medicine yep. and you know the ortho uh, I mean I always joke it's like that Dr. Glockam flicking uh, ortho yes. residency interview <laughs> like, so you. why did you go into orthopedics and he's like I'm smart and I can lift 300 pounds straight over my head there weren't any other <laughs> career options <laughs> you know? um, yeah. so so you know, one of the things that we'll, we'll talk about before we get into because I definitely want to talk about education in the operating theater as mm, it were. Well. Yes. Yes, yes, the operating theater. <laughs> so, um, and that's with a R-E not E-R, of course. That's
1: right. Um,
0: but there is an art to answering questions that you don't know the answer to.
1: There really is.
0: There really is. And it exists in everything, but you know, in medicine, because so many people pimp on rounds and stuff, that's just part of rounds is getting pimped on rounds. You know, you're getting asked questions all the time. And so you've got to have, you got to have some tools in your back pocket on how are you going to answer questions you don't know the answer to. Um, The first thing I tell people there's two big kind of pillars of answering questions. You don't know the answers to pillar. Number one, do not lie. This is in particular important. If someone is asking you information about a patient, never, right. ever, ever make up information about the patient. If you don't know the answer, you answer just clearly, confidently, I'm sorry, I don't know that, but I will look that up and I will tell you. Or, you know, I will find that answer and I'll come back around to you. So never, ever, ever, ever make up stuff about patients. But the other thing I would say is be wrong with confidence. So if you don't know an answer, I have seen and witnessed this firsthand. You could be completely wrong with an answer, but if you do give that answer in an authoritative fashion, they're going to respond in a much better way than if you're actually way closer to the truth, but you sound like you're kind of squirreling around a little bit and you're like, well, I don't know. It could be maybe something like 25%. (laughs) And maybe the answer is 30, but the guy who just answered, you know, the, the student or the resident who answered 25% like that is going to get ripped apart. Mm -hmm. Whereas the person who's like, Maybe 30% is the same answer. And well, what percent, blah, blah, blah. And if you answer, you're like 5%, they're gonna be like, mm, you know, that's pretty close, but that's not quite right. Whereas you could be way closer, yeah. but if you're, if you're vacillating if you're about that answer and you're all, uh-huh. you know, you're all kind of like, well, I think it might be something. No, just be wrong with confidence. Own it. If you don't know the answer, just own it. And the other big thing is don't ever be afraid to say, again, with confidence. I don't know, but I will look that up and I will tell you next time we round mm-hmm. and then do it. So, you know, you've got to be comfortable answering questions that you don't know the answer to. Yep. And then if you say you're going to look it up, you damn well better look it up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. go look that up because if they don't come back around and ask you, If you look that up and what answer you found, there's a temptation to think it means they forgot. Mm -hmm. The truth is probably less that they forgot and more that they are waiting to see. Are you going to follow up? Mm -hmm. So, you know, be wrong with confidence. Never, ever tell a lie. And don't be afraid to say, I don't know, but I will find out. Yeah. So, so let's talk about. Um, kind of more procedural teaching because that's what you saw on Grey's Anatomy portrayed in an egregiously awful, horrible, insultingly bad fashion. Like so many of the, well, I haven't seen that much about Grey's Anatomy, but about every time I see something, I just am, I cringe inside. (laughs) It's just like, oh, it hurts me so bad. In medicine, there's kind of a common saying, and maybe this exists in other things, but medicine's what I know. And that is see one, do one, teach one. So we'll use an IV as an example. You see somebody place an IV. Then the next time it's your turn to try and place the IV. And once you've successfully placed an IV, then the next step is to teach someone else how to place an IV. Now, there's a lot of things where one is not enough, but it's that principle where you need to observe it and then the next step of gaining a, a level of mastery with that skill is putting it into practice and doing it. And then the final real step of mastery is instructing someone else in how to do that. And so we see that in medicine and surgery all the time. You know, you start off and you're simply observing You know, you're watching somebody how to do it. You're, you've read up on it, hopefully, um, in this day and age, it's much easier than it was when I was in medical school, which gosh, I realized just a couple weeks ago, Aubrey, 20 years ago, I started medical school.
1: Oof.
0: (laughs) So I'm feeling really old and the white in my beard, I guess is well earned, but, um, you know now you can watch a youtube video on almost every surgery out there you can you can find some video of somebody doing almost any surgery you need to do yeah so if you're going to do a surgery great go read up on it know the anatomy about it watch a video on it because when you go in to actually watch it in real life somebody's going to pimp the heck out of you you're going to get questions oh, yeah. asked And the more prepared you are to answer those questions, the better off it will go, but you're never doing anything, or at least in good, reputable teaching institutions, you're never doing anything that isn't safe. You've got to learn and you have to learn experientially. You have to, again, that middle part, you've got to do it. You had to do the surgeries. You have to do the procedures you have to do those things, but it should never be in a situation where a patient's safety is at risk. And so you're, you would never, ever, ever take someone who doesn't know what they're doing and put them in a position and then let them flounder to the point that potential harm is coming to the patient. Mm-hmm. You just wouldn't. Yeah. And so, as a, as, as a junior resident or whatever, if you were going through a case that there was a resident who was taking you through it, then again, they're walking you through some of the simpler steps, and then they're probably going to take over at some of the more complicated steps. And there's always going to be an attending in the room, and they're maybe going to take over even at some critical points of the procedure, depending on what it is. But... We're never going to, we understand that people need to learn that residents and med students need to get put in situations where they can gain that experience, but we're never going to do it at the cost of safety for the individual who is trusting us with their care, or at least we never should. There've been actually a a few big lawsuits uh, that I've come across in the last I don't know, probably five plus years where basically what was happening is the attending was not uh, being there with the patient the whole time and was letting the residents do more than was probably safe. And in some cases actually was off doing another procedure in another room while a resident was finishing a procedure and that kind of thing. And again, that kind of stuff happens to a certain degree, There were times in med school and residency when we're wrapping up a case that certainly the attending doesn't need to sit in there while I close an incision. I know how to close an incision. I mean, I do that now. I don't need to close all my incisions. My PA or my nurse practitioner, my NP who's there with me, they're perfectly capable of closing that incision. So we'll get to a point where there's nothing else that could go wrong, Mm -hmm. so then I'll break scrub and I'll go do my op note and I'll put in orders and maybe go talk to the family and then come back around to make sure everything went okay. And they finished up fine, but only doing that because I have closed this incision. I have done this procedure many times with this individual Mm -hmm. while I was observing them the whole way. So that's how come I know I can step away because I know they know what they're doing because I watched that all. Um, I think, you know, we'll give a real quick rundown again of what the different levels in kind of medical training are. You've got your med student, then you have an intern intern is a first year resident. And most of the time interns are broken down into either kind of medicine interns or surgery interns. Um, There are a few others, but you know, most of the time, no matter what you're going to go into you're going to do an internship that focuses on kind of surgical stuff. If it's a surgical field or medicine stuff, if it's a medicine field, um, in my experience, interns don't get in the operating room very much, uh, not a lot of time for them because they're the one who, you, you know, you've got 12, 15, 20, 25 patients or more on your service and you've got to round on them in the morning. You've got a round with the team and they're going to make a plan for all those patients. And then you're making sure that those plans are carried out, that the orders are put in, that anything that needs to be followed up on, followed up on is followed up on. You are putting in your note, you got a document, so you've got to write a note. And yes, sometimes it means you're writing 20 plus notes a day. And then by the time you kind of do all that, now it's time to start wrapping around if you've got people who are discharging, you've got to get discharge orders in, you've got to get discharge summaries in, you know, all these different steps that you're taking there. Like, like it was fun to go to the operating room, but the whole time you were in the OR number one, your pager was going off because the nurses on the floor were calling about, Hey, I need this and such and such for this patient, or I need this for this patient, whatever. And so you were frustrated because Somebody, the nurse in the room is answering your pager and then asking you the question, then you're telling them, and then they're telling the nurse on the floor, and it was just a pain in the, in the butt. But also, you knew that once you got out of that case, you were now one, two, three, maybe four hours behind on this huge pile, pile of work that you had. So really, as an intern, most of your time was managing the patients on the floor, And it really wasn't until you kind of got to a second year, whether it was surgery or urology, whatever, that you started getting into the operating room. And depending on the complexity of the case, yeah, you may have had a senior resident or a chief resident or maybe even a fellow who was with you walking you through it. But the attending was there in the room as well. And oftentimes they were scrubbed in and helping urology is a small enough specialty that we didn't have a ton of residents. And so usually had a chief resident who wasn't on a service and could kind of move around to different cases, but everybody else was on a service. And so you were just doing the cases that were on that service. So it's not like there was a bunch of residents all working together in a single case. It was like one or two at most, because there was a lot of other work that needed to be done. You don't have enough people to spare To have a bunch of people standing around looking, you know, and, and, and on a service, on a team, there's going to be more residents than there are interns. You know, we had one intern per service, except the big services like cardiothoracic surgery, vascular surgery, and trauma. Like every other service only had one intern and those services had two. Even if you've got more than one or two, it's again, I think like on ortho, because they were a big service, they had three interns on orthopedics at a time. But again, they're all off just doing different things constantly. They're not standing around in the operating room. Um, it's, it is the reason why I have had this conversation with my brother many times who is also a doctor a different kind of doctor. He's a PhD and he's made a number of comments and and he's not wrong about how inhumane medical training is. And while I can agree with him that there is a certain amount of inhumanity to it, I also have kind of countered with, but what else do you want? That's the problem. We're stuck kind of between a rock and a hard place in that if we tell the residents, work less, have more days off, you're going to have to be in residency longer, especially if it's a surgical residency. But even if it's not a surgical residency, you have to have experience taking care of a certain number of patients. And if you are spending less hours in the hospital, you're seeing fewer patients. So you're going to have to be there longer. So it's a real trade. You know, I had six long, hard years as a resident, but had I spent less time in the operating room, I would have had to extend my residency by at least another four years. Let's just say, for example, that we made it so residents worked 40 hours a week. Okay. 40 instead of 80. You do the math. It's easy. (laughs) How much longer are you going to have to be in residency? Like twice as long. You just are to get those same, that same amount of patient care so that then you can go and you can be safe to do it on your own. So I don't know. Don't know what the answer is other than, um, yeah, yeah. Residency's hard, but man, I would rather have had five or six really hard years than 10 to 12 totally manageable
1: years. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's totally valid.
0: So, you got to do it. You just got to get in there. You've got to take care of people. You have to do the procedures. If anything you're doing has a procedural component, which really all medicine does, even if it's, you know, if it's just internal medicine, you're still, you've got to be able to put in lines. You've got to be able to do things like uh, paracenteses. You've got to be able to, um, you know, maybe depending if you're on like a neuro or something, you got to be able to do a spinal tap. You need to be mm-hmm. comfortable with these different procedures. And the only way you get there is by doing them. Again, never at the expense of patient safety. But honestly, getting a little uncomfortable, going, hmm, okay, I really got to step it up here. As long as somebody's making sure that that's okay and that that's safe, that's not a bad way to go. I, I think it's right. it's effective teaching. You yeah. learn, you learn fast, and you become very incentivized to learn. If you are kind of put in those somewhat uncomfortable situations periodically, so I don't yeah. know those are some of my thoughts. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree, and obviously my my line of work is a lot less uh high stakes than um the the residents and and stuff have, but it was definitely i mean obviously my Training was just orientation shifts where I was just with another tech and they just we just went about the day doing everything mm-hmm. together and even on the first the first shift like um, my orienter kind of talked me through what we do when we go into the room for the first time and at what times we need to do certain things and then she was like okay you can go in this room you got it and i was like what <laughs> yep <laughs> okay <laughs> um <laughs> and and so you know you just learn how to you you kind of they kind of let me struggle through it a little bit sometimes sure. when when doing things like working the feeding pump and you know connecting it and doing it in a way where you're not going to release gastric content onto the bed and like mm-hmm. <laughs> getting the you know, doing everything in the right The right order, the right steps And it was very effective For their, for my orienters so To kind of just be like, okay, hey, so what's next? And then I'd, you know Do something And they'd steer me back if it wasn't The right thing, and then mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that But it's very effective Because then, you know, I won't forget And I I had this one It wasn't a super Crazy instance, but Um, I couldn't figure out how to we have like these two different types of feeding bags one has like the formula already in it and so you just we have spike tubing that you basically just stab it into the bag and then Mm -hmm. um, or we have other feeding bags where you pour the formula into the bag but so I was getting a spike bag and I could not figure out for the life of me where to put the spike tubing in because I remembered where I was taught and so I was like trying to put the tubing in and I was like it's not going in this should not be this difficult what is going on (laughs) so I went out and asked one of the nurses and I was like what am I doing wrong and she was like oh you didn't take the cap off and I was like oh yep (laughs) and the the patient's mom kind of heard me and she kind of laughed and she was like you'll never forget now and I was like you're right I won't (laughs) like that's so true (laughs) um just you know, little things like that. And again, my my level of care isn't isn't as intense, but it's... But it's necessary. Yeah, it's necessary stuff, and it's necessary to do things correctly, especially because I am right there with the patient, with the family, and I can kind of notice it. It makes some families a little nervous when they see a tech orienting another tech um, mm-hmm. and then see the, that new tech come in and do something by themselves I can kind of they kind of like watch with wary eyes <laughs> as the new tech is doing whatever but I think it's very um, needed for it to be hands-on because you can't just I mean I know I wouldn't remember if someone told me how to do something and then told me to go in and do it but I never like like I was I'm not gonna remember unless I've had the practice doing it hands on, yep. you know. Totally. But yeah, it's good stuff.
0: Yeah, and it's essential and it it is an interesting environment in which to teach and be taught because it is a lot of it. It is in front of other people. It is and and we're teaching and again, we're learning about how to take care of people. And so you know, it puts a little bit pressure on you, but that's okay. We can all rise to it, and uh, you know, and and whatever you see in Grey's Anatomy, just remember that my opinion is there's a ninety nine plus percent chance that it's false. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they're not gonna just let someone bleed out on the table for teaching purposes. That's not really how it works. No.
0: You don't ever let it get that far, so Well, I have one last question for you before we wrap it up here today, Aubrey, and that is have you seen episode one of Miss Marvel?
1: No, I haven't. <sighs> I just finished Moon Knight two nights ago. Oh my
0: gosh. You've got to <laughs> watch Miss Marvel. I didn't it know if it was out already. Yep. Episode one came out last Wednesday. I am so excited to watch episode two tomorrow. It's because good. it's great. It is delightful. Oh, wow. It good. is delightful. So so get on there, so do yeah. a little self-care, watch, uh, watch Miss Marvel, and, and we'll uh, get back together in another couple of weeks, and we'll talk some more about medicine. Again, so thanks good. to everybody who's re- subscribed. Uh, please leave us a review, leave us a five-star mm-hmm. rating. If you have any questions, uh, feedback, thoughts that you want to share with us, reach out at feedback at themiddleofmedicine.com. dot And uh, we'll talk in another couple weeks.
1: Sweet. Thanks, guys.